hot mess. Yes, a lot of us know this phrase. And and before you um, have any comments uh, to myself or Donald or anyone about the TVs, it is supposed to look messy and distorted and broken, and the TVs are fine. Right, but. But this phrase, hot mess, we're going we're gonna to be starting this series, and we're going to spend a number of weeks talking about a whole bunch of hot messes. And um, I, I'm actually excited to go into it, because I, just by some of the response there, we, we all know the phrase, right? Hot mess. We can identify things that are hot messes. And man, sometimes when life is a hot mess, we just don't know how to get through it. Or emotionally, we can get all wrapped up in the mess. So we're, we're going to dive into to that this morning. But before I even dive into the series, I do want to say, um, what a fun week last week was, wasn't it? Um, Easter service here, uh, just all the people that were in the room, the, the fresh baked cinnamon rolls. Um, I wanna, I'm, I'm not going to say individual names because I know then I'll forget somebody and I'll get in trouble. But to everybody who was a part of serving on Easter Sunday, children's ministry, uh, technology, cooking, serving food, um, greeting people, coffee bar, everything that happened on campus, worship team, thank you so much. It was so fun to, to see um, everybody just excited and happy and serving, and, and we had a lot of visitors, and I got a lot of good feedback of people that, that said, I mean, they hadn't been here in a long time, but it was a lot of fun. So thank you, everybody who had a part of Easter. We had an incredible time, and I'm looking forward to, to more of that stuff just on a regular basis throughout the year as we uh, continue to grow and, and dive into to God's Word together. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 15 is where we're going to start today. Um, I, I think that, that hot messes can be found all throughout Scripture, but how encouraging is it for us to know that some of the very first hot messes can be found in the very first book in the Bible? Right? The, 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 these families that we're going to talk about, they, they have a whole lot of amazing stories, kids that set up generations of faithfulness and, and God moving in incredible ways. But you know where a lot of these families started out? It's a big hot mess, a really, really big hot mess. Now, I can relate with this phrase, hot mess. Um, some, some of you guys maybe, maybe haven't really heard of it, maybe you haven't really said it, but a lot of us, I think, have either, if you haven't said it, we know it, and maybe you've said it in this context before. Maybe you've actually said, that person, that person's a hot mess. That person's a hot mess. Or maybe you've said, my hair is a hot mess. My job is a hot mess. My life is a hot mess. Maybe on Sundays you look at Pastor Dustin and you say, Pastor Dustin's outfit is a hot mess. This is the day I dress myself without my wife's consent. This is what happens. You can fill in the blank so many ways, right? Something, something, my, my blank or this blank is a hot mess. And it can mean so many different things. It can be attached to so many different phrases. But it's important to not just name things that seem chaotic, but also for us to know what do we do in a hot mess? What, what do we do when we feel like our lives are falling apart, our families are falling apart, our job is falling apart, our faith is falling apart? If we can say any of those qualify as a hot mess, what do we do about it? What do we learn about it? Over the next number of weeks, we're going to learn some key areas of life and what the Bible points us to do in the midst of a hot mess or a chaotic reality. And to begin, I want us to focus on something that each one of us can relate to, because we're all a part of one. We Maybe we got to choose some of it, but we didn't get to choose a lot of it, and it is part of all of our lives. Anyone know what I'm going to talk about? Your family. Your family. I know some of us can look like, uh, I heard a comedian once talk about how he was driving, and he had his wife in the front seat and his kids in the back, and, and he actually got sick and threw up while he was driving. And he said, so, so he pulled over, and his kids are in the back seat laughing at him. And they're going, oh, look at who am I, who am I? Blah! They're making all these sounds. And he, he, goes, he looks at him, he goes, hey, 
There are four of us in this car. I only chose one. In that moment, you know, he was telling his kids, I didn't choose you guys, but you're in the family, right? So some of our family we choose, some of it we don't, but we all have a family. And I think at many times in our lives, we can all say, this part of my family, or this one person in my family, or maybe it's you in the family, this family now qualifies as a hot mess. What we're going through is just messy. So we're going to talk all about family today. And what do you do if your family is a hot mess? And let me start with mine. (laughs) And I told my wife I was going to do this, but she was like, oh, no. Um, I'll start my family growing up. So my family growing up, we had the recipe to be a hot mess. And let me give you some context on this. 15 kids in my family growing up. I'm number seven of 15, right in the middle. It was a blended family. My parents had four kids when they were married. Then my parents divorced. My mom married my stepdad, who already had five kids. And then together, my mom and stepdad had five kids. So there's 14 of us, and then my dad married my stepmom. Together they had three. Two of them went to be with Jesus when one was just two years old and one was seven days old. But the third is my youngest sister, Katie. My younger sister, Katie. There's another one that's younger than her. See, sometimes I even get it all jumbled up. There's so many of us. But Katie. So you put that all together. There are 15 kids in the house growing up. 14 when I'm with my mom and stepdad, and then five when I'm with my dad and stepmom. So... If you can track with me a little bit on this, right? It can get a little confusing. And I actually, I lived a majority of my life with my mom and stepdad. And it's, it's honestly, it's really weird calling him stepdad. It really is weird because an element of my, my life that not everyone can relate with this with blended families is I know that my stepdad loves me like I'm his own son. And not everybody gets that. I'm very blessed to have that. He calls me his son and I call him dad. And so um, not, not everybody does that. And it's the same deal with my stepmom. It's weird referring to her as stepmom. So as I talk about my family, I have to make a conscious effort to stay stepmom because she's my mom and she loves me like I'm her son. Then that's not everyone's normal. But let let me talk about more of the mess that we could have had. So in essence, I have mom and dad, mom and dad. I have one set that lives in Vallejo, California. Now, a lot of people may not be familiar with Vallejo, California, but um, it was a very, very rough city. We've heard up here, Tacoma is very rough. I look at Vallejo, and I say, Tacoma, what? Vallejo was a pretty rough area. Lots of violence, lots of drugs, lots of gangs. Um, I had a gun pulled on me in high school one time. That was the norm where I grew up. This was Vallejo, California. Back in the 1900s, who knows the name the Zodiac Killer? Vallejo, California, all right? This is where my family, this is where we were raised. This is where we went to school. That is my hometown. They never caught the guy. Or girl, who knows? Zodiac killers still out there, but that was growing up. On top of that, throw in a child of divorce, living in a yours, mine, and ours family. Statistically, I should be very messed up. Very messed up. Statistically, my family should be very messed up. We should be on drugs. We should be alcoholics. It just, you pick what should happen to my family, it should have happened to all of us. But we had God covering a lot of the elements in our family. My family has a recipe for a hot mess. By all standards, I should not stand here before you today. I should not statistically be here married 
with my own kids, pastoring a church. It just, it doesn't add up when you look at all the elements that went into my family growing up because you could look at it and say, step-siblings, half-siblings, step-parents, custody talks. I, I remember when I was, my, my parents divorced just when I was three years old. I have no memory of my mom and dad together, but I have memory of the fights. I have memory of the custody battles. I have memory of, of, of the alimony talks and child support talks. I remember the anger and frustration on both sides of my parents towards each other. I should be a huge mess, a huge, huge mess, but God is good. And I believe that we can see God very clearly and the strongest in the biggest messes. And we're gonna talk some about that today. Maybe you can relate to my story, uh, maybe not, but the good news is across the board is every family I think is messy. Every family is messy. Your personal family, your extended family, church family. Guess what, guys? We're messy. We mess up, people mess up, and it's been that way since the beginning of time. I am not the exception. You're not the exception. We all go through messy times, period. It happens. Every family has its highs. Every family has its lows. I can, I can probably ask you, what's one of the best memories you have as a family, and you can think of a vacation or a, a holiday, or something you guys did together, um, the, the birth of a kid, just something where you say, this was the height of my family, this was so good. And then I could ask the opposite. What's the biggest mess you've gone through as a family? And I bet you some of you would have some pretty incredible stories of things that have happened in your family. Or I bet you that um, maybe some of you would even say, it's actually right now. Right now we are going through something and we're trying to make it, and I don't know, it is hard. Every family goes through this. There are many times you may just use that phrase for yourself, my family is the hottest mess right now. So what do we do? How do we see God in these hot messes? How, how, do, we, how do we learn from Scripture what people do in the middle of these messes? Because if we look at the first families in Scripture, we'll see they have incredible moments with God. They do some amazing things, but they also do some things that are amazing for the opposite reason. We'll look and say, they did What? And yes, they did. They were a hot mess. So I want to introduce you to the first family here that we, we come across. In Genesis 15, we meet Abraham and Sarah. Now, you don't have to go very far. Genesis is right there in the beginning. But Abraham and Sarah, Genesis chapter 15. Now, this family was known for their great faith. However, their faith did not come without struggles. How many, how many of you believe that in order to have great faith, you're going to have to overcome some great struggles, right? I mean, it's not faith unless it's being put to the test. It's not faith unless you really have to believe in it. If, if, it's, if, you're, if you don't have strong faith and you're not, going th or you're not going through struggles, you're not really having to exercise that faith. So this family is known for having great faith because of some of the great struggles they went through. We're going to start with Abraham and we're going to go all the way through to Joseph today. But we're going to learn something from these patriarchs in Genesis. So Genesis 15, Abraham and Sarah. And the first thing we learn, I believe, from Abraham and Sarah, that we can learn when our family is a hot mess is this. We can trust God when it doesn't make sense to. We can learn from this family. We can trust God even when it doesn't make sense. Now, now check this out. At this point in the story, if you don't know the story of Abraham, Abraham has been communicating with God for his whole life. And he receives promise after promise and blessing after blessing. And God says, I'm going to do all these amazing things. And even says to Abraham, your children are going to fuel the world. Look up in the stars. Your generations, you, it will be more than the stars in the sky is what I'm going to do for you. But Abraham's getting old. And his wife is getting really old. And he has no children. And so Abraham actually starts to think, you know what? I kind of 
doubting. His faith is getting put to the test. He's kind of doubting what God has told him now. And so he starts thinking, all right, maybe God meant my servants. Maybe God meant my servants are really going to be my heirs. But then God gets specific. In Genesis 15, 4, God says this. The word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. So now we have God promising Abraham a son. So this, this, this clarifies Abraham's doubt, right? It's not a servant. God says, I'm going to have a son. My son will be my heir. My, my lineage will number more than the stars in the sky. This is a monumental promise because Abraham is an old man. He and his wife are getting up there. How could they have a child now? The odds were not in their favor. And medically now, it's getting to the point where Sarah cannot medically have kids. It's, it's a done deal. You cannot do this. Your body will not do this. You're past that point. Either the impossible point or the life-threatening point. Having a child did not make sense. It was, they, in their minds, this could not happen. But how many of us know that even when it doesn't make sense, that's when God likes to show up? When it doesn't make sense, God likes to say, now your impossible is the beginning of what I can do. So God comes through. And how many of you know that to be true in your life? I bet so many of us have examples where we can say, this was impossible, but I saw God do something. This should not have happened this way, but God stepped in and did something amazing. God shows his faithfulness time and time again. So the question you may be asking yourself today is this. What promise is God speaking over my life? What promise is God really speaking to me? What is God promising that I'm having a hard time believing because it just looks impossible? It's when our faith is really getting put to the test. And maybe you don't, you don't hear the audible voice of God like, like some examples we get in Scripture do. But I believe that if you were to spend some time prayerfully looking at your life right now, you would feel God moving in certain directions. You feel God pressing you to do certain things, to have certain conversations, maybe to take risks that you would say, that's too big a risk. But God would say, not if I'm on your side. If I'm on your side, it's not really a risk because I'm behind it. What is God saying to you? How is God testing our faith? In the midst of your mess, how is God saying, trust me now? See what I can do. And I bet if we did those things, we would experience some amazing blessings everywhere we looked. <clears throat> Often God promises, his promises and his reminders come in the form of blessings. Now the story goes on, continuing in Genesis chapter 18. God makes a promise not only to Abraham, but he says this to Sarah as well. So Genesis 18, starting in verse 9, says, Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So now we're in the, the impossible era, right? So Sarah laughed to herself and thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, I love this, why did Sarah laugh? Can you imagine God saying something and you laugh at him? So God says, why would Sarah laugh? Will I and say, will I really have a child now that I'm too old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the point in time next year, and Sarah, you will have a son. There's not more direct promise from God right there, right? Said, so why are you laughing at me? I will return. You will have a son. Sarah couldn't believe it. She laughed at the thought of, of how messy that sounded, how messy her life was, and how impossible this was. But sure enough, guess what God did? He came through. 
Not once do we ever see an example of God saying he'll do something and not doing it. He always goes through. He always fulfills his promises. So God comes through and their son, Isaac, is born. And you know what Isaac means? Laughter. Isaac, their son, would carry on the patriarchal promise made to Abraham. Can you imagine the scenes prior to Isaac's birth, though? Imagine now that you get this promise, God saying, I will, I will, I will, and you're still, you're still living in the impossible. What are these conversations at home happening? Um, are, they, are they saying things like, do we start preparing for this childbirth? Or is God playing games? Do, 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 we, do we really believe this, or are we hearing things that just aren't true? What, what are we trying to figure out right now? And if you think about it, those are, those are valid questions, right? How many times do we do the same thing? How many times do we say, all right, God, I believe you're going to do this, and then some time goes by and you're like, do I? I got to think about it a little more now. I, I don't know. I just, it, it's, I, I don't know what to think. How many times do we question God? Probably more times than we're willing to admit, right? It had to be a hot mess around Abraham and Sarah's house right now. I bet it was really, really messy with these conversations. There was stress, doubts, emotions, tests, a real mess at times. But then God does what he does best. He fulfills his promise. He gives them their son. And they do one of the toughest things that we're called to do. Trust God even when it doesn't make sense. I remember uh, in my life something that did not make sense. Uh, I, got, I got a tugging on my heart to become a pastor. Now, I was already serving as a children's youth and associate pastor at Church in California, but I started feeling a stirring in my heart, like stepping into being a senior pastor. It was something I promised my wife when we were dating I was never going to do. But I started feeling this, and I was like, this doesn't make sense. I love kids. I love being able to put on a goofy costume and smash eggs on people and just be a children's pastor, right? Who can eat this blended mac and cheese, the Big Mac meal in 30 seconds? You know, it's just a dumb youth game. I say dumb, but they were hilarious, right? I loved that. So, so like being prompted by God now, go be a lead pastor. It was like, this doesn't really make sense. This, I, but God's working in my heart. And then there was a month in September. I got an email saying that a church, specifically a church called Celebration Center, was looking for a pastor. I was on vacation when I got this email. I never checked my email on vacation. I used to, and then I got in trouble for it. So I was told never check my work email on vacation. This church was looking for a pastor. Guess who was not looking to leave their job? This guy. Loved my job. I was not looking to go anywhere. It was 2020. COVID was everywhere. Churches were shut down. Churches were just starting to open back up with major restrictions, right? I had a good job. I was, like I said, I was doing children's youth and associate at a pretty healthy church a growing, strong church in the community. Life was good. I liked what I was doing. My family all lived there. And like I said, my, my huge, ginormous family, we were all within like 30 minutes of each other. My wife's family as well was just an hour from us. We were all right there. I loved my community. We had been in our home for years. We loved our home. Didn't make sense. The church I was working at, Creekside in Martinez, California, my grandpa was the pastor there when I was a kid. My dad was the youth pastor when I was a kid. So I was a third-generation pastor serving at the church. I loved it. Nothing made sense about relocating to Washington, especially when I loved my home. But this email, this email didn't make sense. Moving didn't make sense. But what did make sense is God was putting a prompting in my heart to trust him on something big. So I looked at it, 
And I was like, okay, let's look at the pros and cons. Steady job, secure job. Even through COVID, church was doing good. Own my home, family's here. Sell my home, move to a church that I've never been to before. Take over a church, middle of COVID, things are down. This one's safe, right? If you were to put it on a scale and go, what should you logically do? Staying where I was was the logical, safe situation. It did not make sense to move. But we prayed about it, and the more we prayed about it, the more we felt, go check out this church in Washington. Go check out this place. Go, go check out this church. See what I have for you. And so we did. We came up here, tried to be incognito, spied on the church. The minute we drove on campus for the first time, we were flooded with, we want to be here. Before we even got out of our cars and walked into the building, we felt God saying, you need to be here. And so we trusted him. In that scenario, there were two, in that story, there were two scenarios, right? One that trusts God that says, says, hey, this doesn't make sense. Look at the facts. Nothing about this lines up, but if you trust me, I've got something good. And the other one was, or you can stay where you're at. Yes, you're fine. Yes, you're comfortable. Things are working. You can stay there, but that's not really what I have for you. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? The world would say, don't take a risk that's not worth it. Like, that's just not worth it. There's too much on the line. I mean, pe people actually told us, when we told them, we are going to take over a church in Washington. We're going to go be the pastors of this church in Washington. You know what the number one response we got was? In the middle of COVID? That was the number one line we got from all of our friends and family. Like, in the middle of COVID, you're going to sell your house, buy a new house, relocate two states away, take over a church, and churches are shrinking right now, and that's what you're going to do in the middle of COVID. Yes. And they would say, why? And the only thing we could say is, God's put it on our hearts. God's really put this on our hearts. Trusting God didn't, it, it didn't make sense, but what did make sense was we needed to trust God. We needed to trust him. So what about you and your families? Maybe God has been trying to strengthen your faith on, in reliance on him by putting you in a situation where you would say, this doesn't make sense, but when you trust him, it will all fall together. And you'll see his hand and his faithfulness through it. It may seem chaotic, it may feel wrong, and yet God is going to use it to not only produce what he plans to give, but also something to produce something important for you and your family. I think a lot of times when we look at the messes we're in, we can look at all that and say, I think this mess is an opportunity to learn how to trust God deeper. How can we trust him deeper? However, the story doesn't stop with Abraham. His mess in a lot of ways got resolved. There was other stuff he went through, but if we go through to his son Isaac, Oh man, Isaac had some messes. Isaac had some messes. But it's here we see that in a hot mess and in a hot family, we're called to pour out love equally. In the midst of a hot mess, you're called to pour out love equally. Now, this hot mess of a family becomes even more of a mess as time goes on. Abraham's son Isaac marries a woman named Rebekah. And they, they have these two boys. They have Esau, who is older, and Jacob. And, and what we know to be true in the Old Testament area, or era is that since Esau is the older kid, guess, guess who gets all of daddy's stuff when, when daddy dies? Esau. He, he, he's, the, he's, he's the one that gets it all. He inherits all the things, right? So Jacob desires this birthright. His younger brother, he wants it real bad. And so, so he comes up with this major scheme to get the birthright from his older brother. Now, what does he do? He makes Esau, his older brother, swear to sell all of his rights as a firstborn child. And you know what, you know what he paid him for it? A bowl of soup. Now, we think, my family's entire inheritance or a bowl of soup, what would you take? Well, 
Well, we the soup, right? Yeah. <laughs> we learn that that Esau comes home. Esau's a hunter. He'd been hunting all day, and Esau, we learn, is very dramatic. He comes in. He's like, "Oh, Jacob, who uh, Jacob stayed at home and liked to cook. He was he was like mama's boy. Yeah, daddy's boy and mama's boy. He comes home and he's like, I'm so hungry. I'm gonna die. But his but his brother made some good soup. He's like, I want that. And so his brother seizes the opportunity. He says, if you give me your birthright, you can have the soup. Esau's like, deal, and eats it. It's like, I mean, he had to be really hungry, right? <laughs> Didn't think about it, he just does it. Now, so he does this. How do they get dad to agree to this? They don't. They don't get dad to agree. As a matter of fact, even though he gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup, he probably knows dad will never give you his stuff anyways. That's not how it works, so I still win. Well, Jacob decides to, uh, to do his own little like Ocean's Eleven style heist now. So he goes in. He does his best impression of his brother when it comes time to receive his blessing. See, Isaac is, is blind now, and he's old, and he knows that it's time to pass down his inheritance and give his blessing to his son. So Jacob waits till Esau is gone, and Jacob comes in and does his best impression of his older brother. Remember, his dad's blind. So he goes in and he starts talking to him, and his dad even says, you don't really sound like your brother. Can I feel your arm? Because he's blind now. Now, Scripture says that Esau was very hairy, so Jacob put some animal hair on his arms. He's like, no, it's me, Dad. Feel it. His dad feels the arms. His dad now, in his, in his state of mind, believes that that is his son Esau, and he prays over him and gives him his inheritance and blessing. Guess who's mad when he gets home? Esau comes home. He is ticked. He even begs his dad, give me the blessing. And his dad says, I can't. I already gave it to your brother. And he swears he is going to kill his brother. And it causes a big mess. There's something that we learn, though. Jacob had a key co-conspirator in this process. Mama. Mama was a co-conspirator with him. And here's what we learn, though. Mama wasn't the only one at fault for this. What do we learn about Isaac and Rebekah as parents? Genesis 25, 28 says this. Isaac, who had taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. What we see here in this family of four, we see favorites. We see favorites. Now, I'm not, I'm not here to tell you, try and tell you how you must parent your kids, but I will tell you that if we look into a glimpse of a family that picked favorites in Scripture, it caused so much division. It, it, it caused disunity. It caused a mess. And we see parents who said, I love you, but I love you. And they both pleaded for each other and they pitied their kids. They built up this culture of competing against each other that ultimately led for a long, long season of them wanting to kill each other. Now, if you fast forward to the end of the story, there's a great reconciliation that happens. But, but in the midst, we had, we had one of the brothers run away because his brother was going to kill him. And it came from a lot of picking favorites. So what do we do then? At home, what's our response for, for this? We see this in John 15. John 15, 12 and 13, he says this. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friend. Jesus models for us so great how to love each other. He gives us this perfect, amazing example. And he says the most effective way to love is how? It's the most effective way to love is how he loves us. And how is God's love? We talked a lot about this last week. Unconditional. It's equal. It's sacrificially. That's how he loves us, and that's how we need to love each other. 
starting with our own kids, our, our spouses, our families. Maybe you're here today and you come from a home where you say this type of love is not present or this type of love was not present growing up and I'm here to let you know that this is the type of love God has for you and your entire family, all of your kids. He loves us all unconditionally. He loves us equally and he loves us sacrificially. This type of sacrificial love for us to to remodel it, right? It's gonna take time. It's gonna take dedication. It's gonna take devotion but it invites us to do something. It invites us to lay aside our own desires, It invites us to make sacrifices for each other. It teaches us to love our family. It teaches us to love our friends, to to love our coworkers, and even strangers. Even the strangers because of who God is. Not because of what they do or who they are, but because of who God is and he is working through you. Then we get to model that love for others. And who's the recipient of the love? Everybody. Everybody is. No commas, no parentheses, no exceptions. Everyone. And, and, and if we're to love the way he loves us, you know what we can't do? We can't pick favorites. We, we can't say, I'm going to model Jesus' love to you, but no, not you. You're not worth it. You hurt me. You're out. And, and I know it's a fun phrase we throw out sometimes. And I, I say it totally jokingly to Aurora and Avery when they do something. I'll be like, why can't you be more like your sister? Right? <laughs> we do things like that. But in all reality, we can't pick favorites. We can't say, I will love you perfectly, but not you as much because you're on my bad list right now. We've got to be able to sacrifice some things. We've got to be able to show that unconditional love and start it at home. Start it at home. We need to model love of Jesus to those around us. And if we model that any less, especially in our own homes, we're not promoting Jesus. We're not promoting him at all. We're enabling our own mess to grow. God so loved the world, right? And while it might not be possible for us to accomplish the same achievement Jesus did in his lifetime, we can extend that love and that grace and that compassion to everyone that God puts in our atmosphere. We absolutely can. And there's one more progression that that we learned through this patriarchal family. We got to look into this guy. I love this guy, Joseph. I love the story of Joseph. You want to see another incredible hot mess of a family, man, read Joseph. This is really messed up what happens with him. But through Joseph, we see in the midst of a hot mess, we all have the ability to forgive one another. In the midst of your mess, we can forgive. See, Joseph uh, Joseph is one of 12 sons of Jacob. And at this point in the story, uh, he had some, some dreams that he wanted his brothers to interpret. And Joseph was dreaming, and his brothers got really, really mad at him. And, and so the, the dreams were essentially saying that his brothers were going to bow down to him. He was saying, I was a star, and you were also were stars, but you were bowing down to me. Or I had, I had this hay, and you had hay, and all of yours was bowing down to mine. And so you know what happened? The more he was telling his brothers about this dream, about them bowing down to him, they got mad. It, it makes sense, right? If you have siblings and they start saying that they're, you know, that you feel like they're saying they're better than you, you're going to serve them and they're going to have this and you're going to be coming to them for everything. The more it happens, the more they were getting mad. And sure enough, we see another example of favorites. Guess who was the favorite? Joseph was the favorite. And it caused division in his family. Joseph's brothers were so upset. One day they were out watching the sheep like they were supposed to do. Joseph didn't have to do a lot of the hard chores. He got to stay home with dad. So dad said, hey, Joseph, go check on your brothers. And he even got this huge, beautiful coat that was made for him to show how special and wonderful he was. So his dad says, Joseph, go check on your brothers. This is what happens in Genesis chapter 37. 
starting in 23. So it says, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. The ornate robe he was wearing, they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Now, at this point, so you know, they were planning on killing him. Then they had this other idea. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. So his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So they, they, they let their bloodlust also get kind of consumed with, oh, well, why kill him? We can get some money out of this. And they sell their brother to be a slave. So now Joseph finds himself going from being the favorite kid, at least from his parents. Definitely wasn't the favorite brother, but he was the favorite kid. Now he's a slave. If you know the story, though, you see God's hand working through Joseph. You see God's hand on Joseph this whole time. And Joseph eventually, though he faces numerous setbacks, it's not just a, I'm a slave one day and suddenly now I'm here. He goes through a roller coaster ride and it's an incredible story. But suddenly he finds amazing success with the favor and the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh. And eventually he is elevated to second in command over all of Egypt. What an incredible story, right? It's a role that puts him in charge of distributing uh, food when famine hits. His power, authority, and responsibility became enormous compared to where he came from. And then the day of retribution comes. Guess who needs food? Joseph's siblings. There's a famine in the land. Joseph's in charge. He gets to be reunited with his family. How will he respond when he sees these people who beat him up, wanted to kill him, sold him as a slave. And this is now years and years later. So many years go by and he's so decorated and made up and has all this stuff on. They don't even know it's him when they see him. What does he get to do? How does he reply in this scenario when they come and beg to him? All these years later, what would you do? Here's what Joseph does. Genesis chapter 50, verse 16, it says, So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask for you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they've committed for treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of God your father, of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. You see, what happens is they come to Joseph and he, he actually does mess with them a little bit, makes them think they stole some things and, and, and he gives them their money back and he, he starts messing with their heads and I, I can think of like the ultimate pranks you do as kids and I can imagine Joseph going and telling guys, guess what I just did to my brothers? I didn't even know it's me. But he's messing with them. They finally found out it's him. You know what Joseph does? He forgives them. He forgives them. And then they go home and they come back and with a message from their dad, like you've got to ask him for forgiveness they understand Joseph's newfound power. They see that he is in control. And what do they do when they realize this is their brother who they wanted to kill, who is now in charge and can snap his fingers and they will no longer exist. They'll be written out of the history books. They're gone. What does Joseph do? When they, they beg for it, he forgives them. But you know what's great about that? They begged for something that he already extended. They said, Joseph, forgive us. We bring a message from dad. Please forgive us. He already did it. Sound a little familiar? We get to go before God and we get to say, God, I don't deserve this. I am sorry. I, I'm gonna, I need forgiveness. He's already forgiven you. 
Joseph does a great model here of modeling the heart of God. He forgives. Today, you and I could probably argue that forgiveness is a really hard thing. Really hard thing, right? Whether we're talking about our own family members or complete strangers, forgiveness isn't really easy. There may be some things you can, you can forgive like really easy, but there's some things that just leave a mark, and it's hard. You say, because of what happened here, it caused this mess. Joseph had every right morally to say, I will not forgive you guys. I will not give you food. I will not do any of this for you. I can cast you out. But he chose to forgive. Joseph decides to teach us that forgiveness is key to health. It's a key to a healthy family relationship, even if it doesn't feel great at the moment. Continuing on in Genesis 50, it says, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph doesn't just forgive, but he promises to help them in their time of need. And we think about it, I think this is a lot, a lot of things that we would do with our own families, right? We, we don't just want to forgive our families, too. We, we want to help our families. I know that Aurora, I just had this great conversation with her yesterday in the car, where we're talking, we, were, we went to uh, the University of Washington, and we're looking at the cherry blossoms and the quad and everything, and we're kind of like, Aurora, you could end up going to school here one day. And she goes, eh, I don't want to go here. Like, okay, whatever, fine. But, um, but then she, she kind of she started talking about what she did want to do. She goes, I want to go to school where I do this. I want to go to school where I do that. And I was like, okay. And then she goes, and you're going to pay for it, right, Dad? <laughs> All right. And I said, I made the best promise that I could to my daughter in the moment. I said, Aurora, I am putting money aside, and we are, every month for you to go to college. I'm going to do as everything I can to help you with college. And then I, I was totally true. I said, if that's all of it, and we can't, great. If it's not all of it, I'm going to do what I can. But my promise to you, Aurora, is I want to help you succeed. I want to help you grow. I want to help you thrive. And I think at the deep root for us, when we look at our families, we want that for our families. We want our kids to thrive. I, I, I hope, my, I hope my, my kids have stronger faith, uh, b- bigger families. I, I feel like in the, in the terms of what we define success is, I hope my kids are more successful than I ever am because I want that for my kids so bad. And I know along the road, there's going to be times where I look at them and I go, remind me again why I had kids. There's going to be those moments where I look at it and I say, this is a mess. But the Bible reminds us time and time again that forgiveness is an integral part of a healthy family. A healthy family forgives. And how many of those messes are big messes because maybe, maybe because we haven't extended forgiveness? Maybe that's why it's still an issue. Not because of what they did or what they said, but because we haven't offered forgiveness. Maybe that's why it's still a mess. We're still carrying a burden also carrying bitterness and even anger. And you know what those things do? They make the mess bigger. Bitterness doesn't solve messes. Bitterness enhances it. Family's important. It's so valuable. And, and not just immediate family in your household. For all of us in this room today, this is family. It's going to be a hot mess at times. It's worth it. It's worth trusting God. It's worth forgiving each other. In this room today, there are probably people who have wronged, wronged, wronged each other. There may be people in here that I've wronged, but you know what? It all starts with us. If we look at people that have done things, it all starts. Look back at yourself first and say, all right, who do I need to forgive? Who do I need to forgive so I can let go of this burden that's holding me down? Who am I giving emotional real estate in my heart because I haven't forgiven? Start with yourself. It's up to us. The more you learn about forgiveness, the more you learn it's less about them, it's more about you. 
really more about your heart, less about the offense or the wrong, and more about your heart to pursue Jesus and let him mold your heart. Would you stand with me? I'd like to invite the worship team up as we come to a close this morning. I I hope today, as we look through Genesis, you see that whether we like it or not, whether you like it or not, it's going to be a mess. And and I actually, I I hope that as you look at these stories in Genesis, you can go, wow, my mess is not nearly as bad as what they went through. In in, in the grand scheme of all the messes that we've seen in in Scripture, I know I'm glad that I haven't gone through what a lot of people in Scripture have gone through. But I also am glad that I am the same recipient of the same grace, the same love, power, and redemption of God that they all receive as well. We can all receive this, and we can all call on God to be in the middle of our mess. Maybe today you're struggling with your family. Maybe that's not you now, but you know there's going to be a mess later. The Bible's given us keys in how we respond. Trust God when it doesn't make sense. Love others equally and forgive. The ball is in our court in every one of these situations. So the question now is, what are you going to do? Are you going to go trust God? Are you going to love somebody? Are you going to learn how to forgive? Choose to pour out your love equally. Choose the two favorites. Collectively as a family unit, trust God when it doesn't make sense. Are you willing to forgive and show people forgiveness even if you don't think they deserve it? The truth is, God forgives us, but we don't deserve it. But he does. Let's extend that to people. Let's invite people into our mess. Let's invite God into our messes and use these opportunities to grow our faith in him. Amen? God, I, I thank you for being in the midst of my mess. I, I, I thank you that, that in, in the biggest problems, God, you reveal yourself in the biggest ways. And I pray for anybody here today, for all of us, God, as, as we look in, in our family unit, our friend unit, just our atmosphere, whatever we identify as, as a mess, God, I pray that we're able to look at you and see your hand in it. God, I pray that we love our families the way that you love us. We're able to model your love to our, our spouses, our children, just our extended family, God, that it doesn't stop just in our house, it explodes beyond our house. But we model your love everywhere we go. And God, I pray for anyone here, for those of us who are struggling with forgiving somebody for something, that we're able to let it go. Scripture says, forgive as I forgave you, God, and I pray that we're able to extend that olive branch to forgive to move on and show them the love that you show us. So God, I thank you for for my mess that I get to see you in it. And I pray that we see you more and more stronger each and every day. We thank you, we love you, and everybody said, Amen. amen.